you know, I've heard people tell stories before. It's like, oh, I was so busy. I didn't have time to eat. No, like you never have to worry about that for me. I'm going to get my 30 minutes to go get some lunch. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to turn off Deep Crawl. I'm going to watch TV or listen to music or do something that is just mind numbing for 30 minutes. And that resets me and I'm ready to go start the second half of the day. I'll have another cup of coffee or an espresso, whatever it is. So this week we're focusing on mental health and how it weighs on the shoulders of leaders. We've got two guests to help us do that. Craig Dunham, the CEO of Deep Crawl, going to be talking about that growth uh, journey in particular from his time at Seismic and now Deep Crawl. Uh, and then later on in the show, I'm going to be talking to Thomas Vosper, founder of Isle 3, who's previously been on the show if you were listening about six months ago. This is Tech Talks, though. It's your weekly technology podcast powered by the Harvey Nash Group. And today I'm joined by Akish. You're right. Hello, I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Did you enjoy sitting through listening to me do that intro? I was trying not to make eye contact with you, to be honest. Yeah, I, yeah, I thought you'd it. be trying to put yeah, me yeah, off. Yeah, um, I, I thought I wouldn't put you off because the, the, <laughs> long, the longer it takes you to record means the longer I'm here. And I was like, oh, sat just, here. Yeah, I was like, I'll just. When's let, it going to get awkward? Let yes. him crack on. I see you've brought the um, the cold temperatures from Spain back with you, mate. To be honest. Yeah, it's lovely, isn't it? Oh, yeah, I was going to say, mate, last week we were recording and you were, you just come out of the pool and it was at 17, 18 degrees. And, uh, yeah, I'm sat next to a radiator at the moment. Absolutely yeah. freezing. So It's delightful, isn't it? It's delightful. Uh, but, you know, tomorrow is the 1st of December, getting in the in the, in the uh, festive spirits. Um, I've got to go stick a six-foot-two stag, two of them, actually, outside the house in a bit. Six-foot-two, that's... Uh... I mean, you're fairly tall, but that's taller than you, right? I was significantly taller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, my wife found these um, kind of Christmas decoration stags with lights all on them Mm. uh, on the Aldi website. Apparently, the middle aisle of Aldi is now available online, which is incredibly dangerous. People are just going to buy a whole load of shit that they don't need. Um, Hence, my wife buying these stags. And she thought that they were like three foot or something. No, no, no. They tower over both of us. They are huge. Crikey. And yeah, they're both going to be at the front of the house. Oh, yeah. Everyone on the estate is going to think that we can are you, uh, absolute can... lunatics. When when they're on and in the darkness, can you put a picture up on the uh, TikTok? So we, I don't know if you want people to see where you live, but as you know. <laughs> oh, I, 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 just, I just want to see the decoration. I know where you live anyway. So, um, but yeah. I, I will take I'll take a photo and I'll stick it on the Tech Talks feed. Absolutely. I, I yeah. think that's absolute We're not we're not uh, we're not that famous yet where we can't show the front of our houses because we're scared no, people yeah, might no. line up outside. Oh crikey, mate. That it's very pretty though. Very it's nice. pretty, but it's it's massive. Yeah, they are massive, yeah. Yeah. Uh is there a photo of me stood next to one? For, for, I just showed a quiche to anyone who's who's wondering what's going on. I've got a picture of, of my wife next to it. Oh wow! Yeah, that is tall. Yeah, massive. Yeah. Very Have you got massive. any interesting Christmas decorations? Uh, no, not really. Um, I've got some light up presents that light up that you put under the tree. Uh, oh, I've got, I've got some of them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's about it, really. Does no um, one go also, for it on your street? Like no one, absolutely, kind of. Not really. I mean, I mean, Christmas last year was quite depressing, right? So I, don't, I think. Because do you remember it was like the whole circuit lockdown, and then yeah, I thought lockdown. everyone kind of went for it last year because because it was so everyone kind of wanted to make it feel Christmassy because it was so shit. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I can't remember seeing anything last year. The year before, there was a few bits, but um, yeah, not really, not really. But um, I will be listening to some Christmas songs. Um, 
Good. Yeah, from tomorrow. I think, I, think, I think that's fair from tomorrow. Yeah, getting into the seasonal spirit and all that. Um, and I also did some Christmas shopping day before, day before yesterday. Yeah. Um, so yeah, got got a few. Bits. Well, you got to this year because it won't be in the shops come Christmas with the supply. I mean, Asda apparently have chartered an, another ve- uh, vessel just to get more stuff into the country. Have they really? I heard there's um, going to be a wine shortage. I'm I'm more concerned about that. Yeah. So people uh, with cellars. My my mum and dad. Uh, this is safe to say because people don't know where they are, but they've got about four or five hundred bottles in the garage. Have they? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that's a security concern. That's not announcing that online. No, but, let's but, find out. Let's find out who Dave's parents are and target their garage. <laughs> the yeah, to be fair, but um, but yeah, I mean, it's just I, I don't know. It's crazy, but I, I just hope it's a little bit more normal. It's never going to be what it used to be, but you know, no. for, for everyone's mental health as well, I think we all deserve a good Christmas. Absolutely, and mental health is the subject of today's conversation. Thank you for that lovely link. Uh, We're talking about juggling uh, good mental health with the pressures of being a founder and growing a business. Um, Slush kicks off later this week in Helsinki, and that's part of their agenda. So we were keen to focus in on it. It's, uh, I think, especially in the dark evenings when there's less daylight, it's something that's really important, kind of um, seasonal, what is it, sad seasonal something disorder. But, you know, where there's less daylight, people can feel a bit more depressed. So with the pressures of work, we want to make sure that everyone everyone is looking after themselves. And let's dive into our first conversation with um, CEO of Deep Crawl, Craig, who is going to explain how he's kept a positive mental attitude whilst growing a business. So today I'm chatting to Craig. Uh, Craig, is it Dunham, Dunham? Uh, I, you know, given that you're American, I don't want to kind of put a British pronunciation on this and then get it horribly wrong. It is actually Dunham, and the funny thing is, I do believe my last name has Scottish origins. So, so I'm told. Uh, so it's it's Dunham, and that's the right pronunciation. Actually, you got the first name correct. Most Americans we say uh, Craig, like C R E G. And uh, I spent a bunch of time in my career living in London, and uh, I, I love that the British uh, actually pronounce it correctly. It's Craig. Uh, I'll so be perfectly honest. Yeah. If, if someone said Craig to me when I looked at your name, I'd, I'd wonder. What, yeah. what was wrong if they just misread it so yeah there we go cultural differences uh names aside craig you are the ceo of deep crawl before we get into anything else do you want to explain who deep crawl are yeah so we are a technical seo platform and you know most people don't know what technical seo is uh but it's a it's a discipline that uh, call it leverages technology to make sure that a website meets the technical requirements of search engines uh, with the goal to drive better organic search results. Or if I simplify that really simply, it's, you know, when you search for your company in Google, uh, I want to make sure that, uh, you know, the results come right near the top of the, the of the results page. And so our, our technology enables our customers to gather like really actionable data about their website. Um, that data allows them to make sort of technical changes, architectural changes to help Google find them better, um, to make sure that their website is technically sound, it's fast, it's performant. Um, and, you know, Google is putting a big emphasis on the performance of your website as uh, it provides for a better experience for users when they get there. And so brands are really starting to focus a lot about the experience their customers have when they get to a website, um, as well as Google is starting to recognize that 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 um, uh, that that page experience is really important as well. And so they've 
allow that to have a greater percentage in terms of their algorithm, uh, in terms of driving uh, the, the results on, on their, their search results page as well. And so it's a really uh, important thing that is getting a lot more focus now, uh, given, given this acceleration of digital that's happened over the last several years. Yeah, I was going to say, in particular, has the pandemic thrown that into focus? Because so many more businesses have had to become, let's not maybe say digital, but more digital than they were or mature their, their, yeah. their digital front. Yeah, I've been in MarTech for, I don't know, 15 years or so. And, you know, we've been talking about digital transformation for almost the entirety of that time. But no one has really quantified it in any meaningful way. Uh, no one has really said, like, what is the you know, quote unquote, end of this transformation, there really probably is no end. But what has been evident is that the that COVID has accelerated in a way that um, that is that has placed just a greater focus on it. And so, you know, there's that angle. And then there's also the combination of, you know, people are just, you know, making decisions based on the experience they have with you and your brand and your website. And, you know, that those decisions are often based on the experience that they have with you. Um, before ever talking to a person oftentimes, right? You know, before ever, uh, before ever actually, um, you know, hearing from you directly, they're going on your website. And so it's the first and often the most impressionable uh, experience that they're going to have with your brand. And so uh, there's definitely a greater focus and COVID has helped really accelerate that. Now I mentioned that you're CEO, but you joined the business as COO, right? Yeah. Yes. How's that transition from one to the other being? Uh, exciting. You know, I think, you know, for us, you know, it was a business that was led by uh, by one of its founders. And, you know, he had been in the business for a number of years. And, you know, as we think about the next phase of our growth and how we mature as an organization and provide better product and 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 better customer service to our to, our, to the folks that are that are signing up for our software, um, you know, he felt uh, our prior CEO felt like his experience was better suited in product. It's where his his history was, and my background was really more on sort of um, broader go-to-market operations, as well as uh, having had some experience in product and customer success and sales and marketing. And so my experience was much broader. And also I'd come from you know companies who had had success going down the path that we're now trying to go. And so we both decided that our we should align our experiences with the roles that we wanted to go do. Uh, he wanted to go you know focus on product, and I wanted to run a business. And so it, it kind of worked out well for the both of us. You mentioned that you got a bit of a track record. Um, if I've got this right, you were part of the exact leadership team at Seismic and, and you were part of the team that helped them grow by over 1.5. Now, I've been told the stats that I was given, I'll be, I'll, let's yeah. check this is right, 1.5 billion pounds rather than dollars in seven years? So, yeah, that's actually, that's in dollars, actually. So right. uh, when I, I'll give you a little back. So when I joined Seismic, I was employee number 20. Seismic was a, you know, like as a 20 person uh, startup uh, founded by four uh, great folks, mentors of mine now. Uh, we were, um, this was in 2013, late 2013, I joined. Um, and yeah, and we were valued at about 15 million. I think this is public now, 15 million U.S., when I left there in August, we had taken our valuation from 15 million to about 1.6 billion uh, US. And, uh, and I've, so I left about a year ago and they, they're still, you know, they're still rocking and rolling. They're, they got to raise another round of funding. They're now at 3 billion uh, as of, I think, mid, mid at some point this summer. So, you know, I was employee number 20. I think they're, they're up to over, you know, 2000 plus employees now, I think we're at about 1500 when I left. And so it was just part of this, you know, 
you know, call it the 0.001% of companies who experienced that kind of growth 100% year over year for seven straight years. Uh, it was an incredible ride. And, you know, I got to learn a lot and grow quite a bit and played a bunch of different roles. And, you know, all of that experience, I think, was really the one of the primary things that really helped prepare me for a role like I'm doing now at DeepCrawl. So you were a director there, then you were a, a VP, then a GM. Mm-hmm. This might be a really basic question, but did your job get easier? Look, 20, 20 people organization, I suppose you're kind of doing a bit of everything. Through to a 2,000 strong organization, you can kind of really refine that role down, even though it's a, it's a huge organization, right? The challenges just grow with the responsibility. So no, I don't, I don't think it got easier. I think it got a little bit harder <laughs> with each one. And, you know, that... That is the fun of it, at least for me. I, I tend to nerd out about about business in this way where, you know, I can get bored in a job if I'm doing the same thing over and over again. And so, you know, I joined Seismic with this goal of, hey, we're, you know, we had a sales engineering function, which is like a pre-sales specialty function. And it was, hey, we're going to grow this team. And so go figure out who the right people are and figure out what the right story that we should be telling in market. And so that was a really fun thing. And then at some point we discovered a story that was very repeatable and we had a problem that we can solve that was very specific to a certain subset of our customers in financial services. And we said, Hey, we should build an entire business around this. And so then I moved from like running this one individual function to like running a small go to market exercise that are just focused on how do we sell more uh, of, of our software to financial services customers. And I did that for a few years and we were just, again, just same story repeated, uh, you know, drive demand for it. And, you know, and, and the value that we were providing to those customers was so substantial that, you know, we were winning uh, opportunities, you know, uh, in an unheard of, you know, think about the benchmark. If you think about a, a sales funnel, you know, if you're closing 25% of your deals in your funnel, you're doing a really great job. You know, at Seismic and Financial Services, we were closing like 65, 75% of deals that came into the funnel. It was unheard of. Um, but we had such a unique product and a unique story and incredible people that we were working with um, that could tell that story and go out to market and support it and build the right product for it. And so it just worked really well. Um, and so I did that for a while. And then at some point I moved into, we, we did an acquisition of uh, what had been one of our biggest competitors. And so suddenly, you know, my job was now okay, well, I'm not running this financial services function anymore. I'm now leading this acquired company. And that was a completely different exercise uh, than before because now it was a huge exercise in people of like, how do we get all of the employees that we just brought on board to like fit into the culture of what we do and how we do and why we do and how do we get them to tell our story and how do we migrate all the customers that were on the, uh, the acquired company software? How do we migrate them onto our software? And, you know, and all these things are just a different exercise that, you know, to this day was probably the hardest job I've ever done, um, just mostly because, you know, um, you know, integrating the cultures of two different companies, it's a really, really hard thing to do just to make people feel good about that. But this episode that we're focused on today, we're talking a lot about mental health. Um, mm -hmm. Slosh kicks off in Helsinki. It's one of the world's kind of biggest gatherings of, of startups. One of their chief tracks is around kind of maintaining a healthy mindset. You talk there about 100% growth year on year, you know, repeatable, yes, but seven years worth-ish, six years worth of, of constant growth. A lot of that pressure, was it was it internal? Was it external? Where was Where was the pressure to... I suppose to keep growing applied from and was it always positive? 
Oh, good question. Uh, you know, I think our our leader there, our our, our you know the the CEO at Seismic, uh, his name is Doug Winter. Um, you know, he did a really good job of uh, of applying, I think, the right kind of pressure. Where you know, I almost I almost hesitate to use the word pressure to de- to describe it, but you know, it was we set aggressive targets every every year. And, um, and, you know, it was our job as leaders who supported him to get the team excited about going out and facing that challenge and putting in the work necessary to, you know, to, to hit those numbers and such that we were trying to do. And so, you know, the, the pressure really was around like just being accountable to ourselves and accountable to each other and really wanted to help and support each other. And so, you know, um, I think we took the idea of pressure and turned it into an exciting thing, into something that we all wanted to do and uh, and wanted to be a part of, just because we were all starting to see the benefits of it. And you know, winning is fun, man. Like it's really fun. And you know, and and so the way that we approached it was, you know, if we do these things, if we adhere to these process, if we, you know, if we're all telling the same story, then you know, we can go out and win more and we can have more fun. And so, um, you know, certainly there was some pressure to hit those targets, but. Uh, I think we did a really good job as a leadership team and and getting people excited about the challenge more so than feeling the pressure of what we had to do. That is an interesting thing. You get getting people excited about that challenge because I suppose the culture of the organization culture is this malleable thing. It, it changes obviously over time, and the culture of an organization of twenty people is obviously going to be different to the culture of an organization oh, yeah. of two thousand people. But how do you? really make sure that the idea and that excitement really filters through the organization from an executive team and, and does it in a way that really takes hold. Yeah. Here's my, here's the trick. I, I think, you know, you can have very senior leaders who can stand up in front of the company at all hands meetings and talk about like what we're going to be and why we're going to be and the, what, what our values are as an organization, et cetera. I think the trick really is you need those, you know, two, three level down mid-level managers to really get on board and really believe in what it is that that you're doing as an organization. Um, You know, there, I think, you know, those people are oftentimes like the heartbeat of the organization and they're the ones that get, you know, sort of the. The, the less experienced, the more junior staff excited. They're the ones that still have the connections into senior leadership. Uh, they're the ones that are really going to drive the culture, I think, in a positive way. So you got to find who those cultural leaders are, right? Successful, high-performing people, um, you know, and and have those people be like the quote-unquote champions of, of driving what you want your culture to be and driving that home and in, in the way that they work in the way that they engage with people and the way that they um, in the way that they manage people and the way that they work as individual contributors. Those, those are the folks that I think are really going to make an impact on, on driving culture mm-hmm. for an organization. Now the executive team, it kind of stands to reason that you all have to hold each other to, to account to a degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think it'd be interesting from a dynamic point of view, you know, when someone new joins that team, say someone joins that team two years ago, right? And you're the guy that's been there when it was 20 people and you've seen it through this huge period of growth. It might be quite hard for that new person to hold you to account. And I remember having a conversation with someone a few years ago um, who'd worked at Apple who said that sitting around the table um, with execs at Apple, there were people who you felt that there was the ghost of Steve Jobs behind them because they'd been there yeah. when Jobs had been there and that it was quite difficult to challenge those people. How do you make sure that that team retains 
that ability to hold itself to account? Yeah, that that is a great great question. Uh, you know, I think like there are a bunch of like there's a bunch of people who probably know more about this topic than me. But you know, the idea of like how do you how do you form teams and how do you make those teams be become successful? And I do think that when you come in, there is a little bit of a period of transition where you're figuring out the new dynamic of the team, and you know, you're you you know, there may be a little bit of call it, I don't know the expression, walking on eggshells around each other until you, because you, you, you want to make sure you don't upset people or offend people, et cetera. But, you know, I think what I would say is that you, you really need to do a, a, as good a job as possible in the vetting process and have new candidates who are coming into like a, an executive team, really meet with, interview with, get a feel for all the people on the team um, and such that they, they, they have a certain level of comfort to be able to speak up and to challenge uh, I also think there's opportunity for existing leadership to sort of open the room up for challenges to, to be challenged. And it's one of the things that I like to encourage is, you know, if, even if you think about sort of personalities where some people are more extroverted or some people are more introverted, it's like you've got to create space to allow other people to talk. And so, you know, we had to actively manage that where, you know, at the end of a slide or at the end of a presentation or at the end of introducing some idea, it's specifically asking like, you know, I'm open to feedback. Let's have a conversation. And and if you see someone sort of sit up and feel like they're about to speak, but maybe, you know, crouch back and and not actually say, it's, say, hey, you know, Sally, right? What what was it that you were going to say there? Like, come on, I would love to hear it and encourage it. And so part of it is just, you know, it's just a willingness to listen and learn and and creating space for those people to speak. So you joined uh, Deep Crawl as we as we said at the big. Be- Roughly at the beginning of this year, now CEO after a period of COO. Where 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 is the the organization and its journey? How large is that organization? Yeah, so we are uh, just over a hundred people. Um, we are you know split across the the globe a little bit. We have you know the bulk of our folks are in the UK, so sixty five or so seventy people there, and I know another sort of highly concentrated group of people in in New York. Uh, and mm-hmm. then another group of, you know, a bunch of us just spread sort of around the U.S. and a couple places in Europe as well. Um, we have a, so we have offices in Poland, London and New York um, and then just, a, you know, remote employees scattered kind of around. And I feel like the scattering has grown a bit like most companies since COVID, because, you know, we hire yeah. talent wherever that talent is. And we're not you know particularly uh, looking for people just just where our offices are located today. So about 60% of people in the organization can get your name right. So that's a good start. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I love it. I love it. And the accents are pretty great too. So I always enjoy being on being on those calls. So look, you, you've obviously gone through this process with Seismic and that, that must have taken a lot out of you as an individual. I'm sure it was a, a wonderfully positive experience and listening to you talk, that's evident. But going back to another organization of, you know, hundreds of people, not thousands of people and looking at doing that all again, how does that feel? Exciting and scary all at the same time. Exciting because, you know, when I did it at Seismic, I was riding shotgun, so to speak, is the expression. Or I was, you know, you know, I was one of, you know, a leadership team of 10. And, you know, I reported to, to our CEO um, and I got to learn a bunch of things from him. But now I get to be at the figurative head of the table, so to speak. And, you know, for me, from a career perspective, it's something that I've always, that, uh, you know, at least for the last 10 or 15 years or so, I've aspired to, to, to want to do. And, uh, and now I get my opportunity. And, you know, so more than anything, it's exciting while recognizing the weight of that responsibility. Um, and that part is a little bit scary. And, you know, I, I, 
I'm glad we've mostly moved to a place now in the world where we can admit a little bit of vulnerability and fear around what it is that we have to do, because I understand the responsibility of a lot of the decisions I make and the impact that it has on people and the impact that it has on their families, potentially, and all the and their people's careers and, and all those sorts of things that, 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 you know, I can't in a, in a vacuum say that I own every single one, but certainly, uh, it does, you know, in the seat that I'm in, it does sort of roll to me in some way, like all the, you know, the, the, the you know, the potential, uh, you know, uh, implications of, of, of the decisions that I make. Um, so I'm very aware of that. So look, the last thing that I wanted to ask then, you mentioned there the weight that, 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 of that responsibility. You're the CEO of a growth company. What would you say to another CEO of a growth company? And this isn't a business question, but just mm-hmm. that helps you keep in a positive frame of mind. Something that you do that helps you, you know, be healthy, be happy and, and approach each day in a positive mind frame, mindset. Yeah, you have to find times to shut it all off, I think, unplug a bit. Um, you know, I've got a couple routines that I try that I try to do that I, I, I'm relatively consistent on. Uh you know, and that is 30 minutes a day. I, I go, you know, I've heard people tell stories before. It's like, Oh, I was so busy. I didn't have time to eat. No, like you never have to worry about that for me. I'm going to get (laughs) my 30 minutes to go get some lunch. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to turn off deep crawl. I'm going to watch TV or listen to music or do something that is just mind numbing for 30 minutes. And that resets me and I'm ready to go start the second half of the day. I'll have another cup of coffee or an espresso, whatever it is. And so I, I would recommend that. Uh, I would also recommend, you know, especially in this highly digital world is, you know, don't don't feel this pressure to constantly have, you know, video on all day or pressure your people to have video on all day. It's exhausting to do that. I think people are a little bit tired. And so I've started encouraging and I do and people who work with me know that, you know, when I do my one on ones, I'm like, oh, call me on my cell phone. I'm going to take a walk. You know, and so getting out of the house or out of if you're in it back in the office, getting out of the office and getting some air and walking around and doing walking and talking meetings. I, I really enjoy those. That helps keep me grounded. Um, and then I personally, I love to exercise. And so somewhere in the pandemic, I I, I used to like yoga. Now I you know, over the last 18 months, I love it. And so uh, that for me, it's just the breathing associated with it and the stretching and those sorts of things I think are, are ways in which just, you know, just reset me a little bit as I think about all the, you know, all the stresses that come with, with the role that, that, that I'm in. And then the last thing I'll say is, and I hope I don't get myself in trouble here, but, you know, like I care a lot about the business and having it grow and the people, um, you know, but, you know, we're not, Decrawl is not, you know, saving lives here. Like, you know, there are, there are, you know, there are people in those kinds of jobs who do that. And I think those people have real pressure, right? I'm not a doctor. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not in a, in a role where, where, you know, the decisions that we make are life or death. Um, they are impactful, but they're not life or life or death. And so I like to put it all in context in that way at times. Um, and so as we're making decisions, as I'm talking to people, as I'm coaching people and guiding, I always encourage people to, you know, put your family first and put yourself first. And then we'll think about the business after that, you know, unplug, take vacations, those sorts of things I think are really good as a culture. We want to make sure there's an organization that we, we allow people time to do that as well. I think it's really healthy to hear the CEO of a growth business working in the digital space say, 
take 30 minutes just to do something mind-numbing. The amount of people that I talk to who are stressed, who say they're too busy to do something, you know, too busy to listen to music, too busy, you know, I've got X, Y, and Z to do. And it's like, no, no, actually, for your own health, just unplug for a bit. Yeah. And, and, uh, and honestly, I'm very intentional about not just doing it, but making it visible so others know that I'm doing it. And yeah. so, uh, you know, uh, we have an open calendar policy, not, not a policy, but like as a culture, our calendars are open. So anybody can go on my calendar and see what I'm doing all day. Right. I don't I don't hide that from 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 my team, uh, from anybody in the organization. They can go look. And so those breaks, they're in my calendar. Right. Yoga at noon. I'm going to go do that because I need 30 minutes to like reset myself for the second half of the day. It's in my calendar. Um, and I encourage other people to do that as well. I think, you know, if one thing that we've learned during COVID is that we have to allow a greater level of flexibility in, in allowing people to figure out when they work and when they need to do life stuff. And, you know, I, I've always believed that, you know, I don't expect, like, I don't want people to clock in and clock out every day. I just want you to get your work done. Um, and however you choose to do that, I'm generally okay with, right? You know, there needs to be some like working during, you know, traditional working hours because that's when our clients are working and we need to be there for them. But, you know, I don't micromanage nor do I, uh, nor do I, you know, sort of have a great level of oversight into what people are doing, you know, 24 hours a day. Just get, get the things done in the time frame that we need to get them done. And we try to, we try to focus on that. Craig, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Um, given that you're coming up to lunchtime now, I <laughs> you do get a chance to unplug and eat. <laughs> Sounds like you will. will. Uh, and we will hopefully catch up with you again. All right, perfect. Thank you so much for your time. 15 million to 1.6 billion US. That's a hell of a growth. Two, 20 people to 2,000 people. Yeah, it is. And it probably comes with a lot more headache. I think you asked the question, like, oh, did your job get easier? And then he was yeah. a bit like, you know, no. I'd love to. I'd love to see the look that he gave you via Zoom. <laughs> my it's thinking, like, right? My thinking. Let me explain. Was that your job might become more refined? Right. At the beginning, yeah, yeah, he's yeah. doing a bit of everything. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then, as as it gets bigger, mm. you have a team that you can delegate a bit more to. So mm. yes, of course, the job is more complex in some regards but at the same time it might be a little bit more streamlined that's all i was thinking yeah yeah yeah. fair enough fair enough which which i think it probably was but then i think the responsibility weight of that streamlined operation is probably massive right um yeah and then because because he has been there from from day dot almost um or very early on then a he would probably be the person that you go to for for a lot of things um, he would know the business inside out and and kind of you know still be able to help develop get to the the, the next stage right so um it's it's, fair, it's to be fair it's testament to him really for still having that drive and, and pushing everything forward um yeah. but yeah it's pretty that, that is lumpy and what would you say 100% growth seven years in a row yeah so it's 100% yeah. growth year in year and this is interesting right because i I would think of you to think of the typical startup story, the pressure to grow, the pressure to get user acquisition, the pressure to, you know, when you're burning through other people's cash, that that would be where the mental strain is, right? But that, to someone like Craig, is the exciting part of the job. That's mm. the bit that, that those kind of individuals thrive on. Mm. The bit that he obviously is, is, this, 
maybe not stress is the right word, but stressful aspect of what he does is the fact that there is that response, that weight of responsibility, the fact that his decisions affect so many people's incomes, therefore their family and, you know, coming up to Christmas, if that business is doing well, people can afford to have a lovely Christmas and time with their families. And if it's, if it's not, and obviously now he's moved on to, to deep crawl and he's at the beginning of that journey again, but if he makes the wrong decisions that can affect so many people and that, that must, it obviously does weigh on him. And in a way I'm glad it weighs on him because mm. it's the kind of thing that leaders, I don't want them to be stressed, but it's the kind of thing that you want them to remember that, that so many humans are working for them. Empathy, right? Actually not treating humans as just numbers that are able to just generate revenue. And, and those people that work for him in that organisation all have their own livelihoods. And I think you could probably draw a comparison to the pandemic and the whole kind of furlough situation here in the UK. And so many bosses and companies had to, um, you know, kind of put people on furlough and, and decide kind of who goes on furlough, what happens, that sort of thing. In fact, I, I was at my barber's yesterday and we were talking about this time last oh, year. You're looking sharp. Just to Thank you, mate. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I was, I was talking to him about this time last year and how he said this was when he was, you know, most of the lads that were in the other chairs, they were all on furlough, right? Mm. And he was like, this is when, like this time last year, was when I was deciding kind of who to bring back. Are we going to open up for Christmas? They kind of opened up a little bit and then it all broke down again. And, and you know, he was talking about the kind of stress and the headache that he had, um, given all the kind of, <clears throat> I, I guess, just the, just the repercussions that he knows his decisions can have on some of the other guys that work in his shop. Now, that's, yeah. a, shop, that's a shop of five people. So imagine all those people that are working with Craig and then kind of understanding that, but then you're also reporting upwards and to the investors. And so, I mean, mental health, um, he, he sounded like quite a chirpy guy to be fair. And it uh, seems like he, he's done all right with it, but I mean, yeah, I'd love to see if he wears any wearable tech, what his heart rate was or <laughs> something like that. I mean, not to be stereotypical, but Americans, they're chirpy, right? Mm. They're lovely to have conversations with very upbeat, positive people. Yeah, yeah. Unlike us Brits, who we <laughs> dour and sardonic. Yeah, just you know, yeah, <laughs> crap. Everything's crap. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, we're kind of joking and stereotypes aside. Um, I love the fact that he he is obviously someone who has led huge organisations, continues to do so, makes a lot of really important decisions. Is probably someone that I, I imagine he's approachable. To, mm. to the people that work for him. But, you know, if you're new in, in in Deep Crawl and it's a conversation with Craig, I mean, if you're new at Harvey Nash, right, a conversation with Bev feels like a big deal. Yeah. And yet here is someone with all that responsibility and authority who says, sometimes you just got to do something mind-numbing, listen to mm. a bit of music, watch a bit of TV. I'm yeah. going to absolutely make sure that I have time for food. And I think mm. that's – I said it in the interview. I'm going to state it again now. I think that's really healthy. Yeah. Do you know what? When he was saying that, right, I'll, I'll give you an example. What I used to do up until about two months ago or maybe six weeks ago, I used to save some admin -y stuff, right, where you're just having to type out an email response and just having to do a couple of admin bits. I used to save that for when I was eating because I knew that I could, if I'm having a soup, whilst I'm blowing into it trying to cool it down because it's going to burn my mouth, I can just write back a couple of paragraphs or a line or so. And that's my work done. And then I realized, I was like, 
I'm actually not switching off. So now all that stuff can wait. Um, I kind of like, you know, like you said, watch a bit of TV, bit of, I watch a bit of YouTube, yeah. know, a couple of, couple of videos, like seven, 10 minutes each, something like that. And, and that's done. It, it just, it just switches you off. And I, and I leave my work phone upstairs and you know, I don't take it down with me. So. And you know what? Like working culture has come a long way in the 15 yeah. years, 14, 15 years that I've worked, but the attitude yeah. used to be, you're at your desk, what are you doing if you're on like YouTube watching videos and whatever else? Mm, mm. And I'm glad that it's now, no, that you need that time. You need that time as an individual. Yeah. It isn't, it's not you slacking. You need to, you can't be on 10 hours a day, every day. You'll, mm. you will, you will not be productive. And I think, mm. I think that's been accelerated again through the pandemic. And that's something, that's something positive. You know, we have to look after each other from a mental health perspective and, and we have to tell people, you know, it's okay to chill out. I've, I've got, um, Sam who works for me, text me yesterday, uh, going out for lunch. I'm going to be a little back a little bit later. I hope that's okay. I'm going to go for a walk with my girlfriend. There's some seals on the beach nearby. We just want to go see it. It's like, yeah, absolutely. Mm. As long as, as long as the work's getting done, mm. I don't care. Go and mm. do that. That sounds lovely. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think, I think as long as a lot of the times, right, our minds think to, if you're chilling out, you're going to be non-professional. Do, do you know what I mean? Like, they think chilling out is going to the pub and, you know, sinking 12 pints. Like, that. that's not what people mean. I mean, some people might do that at lunchtime, be absolutely fine. I wouldn't. But, um, <laughs> you know, but what I'm trying to say is, I guess, sometimes just a little bit, half an hour, 45 minutes, even an hour, whatever you need, really. Like, you can't quantify it. Um, yeah. Whatever you need just to relax, recoup, go again, that's ideal. I mean, I've done it a few times where I'll get some bad news or I'll get something, <clears throat> you know, that is unexpected i'll go for a little walk around the block um you know and and kind of just listen to some music or something a few deep breaths and then come back and go right you know make myself a coffee how, how do i get on with this and 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 i think i think it's fine to switch off and if something drastic was happening we all work with colleagues that are also friends i think mm. and everyone has your personal phone number so if something was actually dramatic and burning down people can still get hold of you so yeah just because you can't reply back to a team's message or an email or some sort of a direct thing like don't worry about it you know yeah yeah that's what i'd say right we're going to take a, a quick break when we come back i'm talking to thomas Vosper. he's as i said he's the um founder of aisle three and we're going to be talking um about whether or not we i suppose mythologize to a degree um, the founder, and certainly with the collapse of Bulb, kind of looking at how much pressure or how much status we attach to the founder and, and what that means, uh, whether or not that's healthy. So we'll have a quick advert break. We'll come back with that. A couple of years ago, Michael and Jacob, two friends from London, were both thinking about their consumption and sustainability as a whole. Michael, a professional footballer at the time, realised he had no options when it came to sustainable sportswear. Overconsumption and underuse was all too common. Hilo was born, a sportswear brand fighting for the planet by changing mindsets. They've started with a running shoe made with seven natural materials, and the shoe can be recycled at the end of its life. As a company, they've offset their carbon to beyond zero, making them carbon negative. You can find out more about Hilo and support their mission at hiloathletics.com. That's H-Y-L-O. We support the Hilo movement. 
Welcome back to the show. As I said, this is an interview with Thomas Vosper. We're talking specifically about some typical topical stuff around bulb and the collapse um, of that growth business, and also kind of exploring how we perceive founders and again um, the state of uh, a founder with regards to mental health. So we'll hand over to that interview. It's a quick one. I uh, hope you enjoy it and we'll be back afterwards. So I'm chatting to Thomas Vosper, uh, who we had on the show about six months ago uh, when we talked to you about the fact that you were the, the Wikipedia of product search. How have you been since we last chatted to you? Uh, working hard, working three full-time jobs, one trying to grow a business, one trying to hire a team and one trying to continually raise funds. So, well, so that's the joy of being a founder, right? Absolutely. And look, I wanted to get you on the show because I know that you're, you're kind of a first time founder, but someone who's been in the industry for a long time. Um, and if we're talking about mental health, which we are in this episode, then actually getting men who are who are externally very successful to talk about the pressures of of that business and what that's like is is, is really quite a healthy thing i do note that whilst we're recording people obviously can't see this because it's audio but you are surrounded by musical instruments so that might be one way that you uh, de-stress a little bit you've got a piano and a whole load of guitars on the wall behind you uh yes absolutely i have several guitars a lovely piano and one could assume that i know how to play them <laughs> well tell me they're not just wall art <laughs> Uh, no, they are real. <laughs> Good. Well, look, I, I, as I said, we, we are talking about mental health. Um, there was an article published at the end of uh, last year, actually, on UKTM, but I think it's just as relevant as ever, um, about the fact that, that in 2020, um, there have been 200,000 new companies alone started and more than more than 5 million people describe themselves as self-employed. I can only imagine that those numbers have been going up. But something that stood out to me in this particular article was it was talking about mythologizing founders um, as a real thing. And I thought this was quite interesting because we do have this kind of slightly mythical image of what a founder is. And and I wondered if that tallied with your experience with Aisle 3. Uh, yeah, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? The insight that you see on social media in terms of what's actually the reality behind the scenes. It's, you know, uh, many times we see people uh, pontificate about putting up pictures of icebergs saying that nine tenths of it's underwater or the duck or the swan kind of gracefully gliding across the water and then the legs kicking away furiously. And so we all know that and we all accept that. But it's still very easy to judge yourself and everyone else on the fact that everyone's got a controversial opinion on Twitter and everyone's very popular on Facebook. And we're all very beautiful on Instagram and very funny on TikTok and, of course, highly successful on LinkedIn. Do you think there's an element that within the tech community, we understand that that's not the reality, but outside actually technology startups have become fetish somewhat. I mean, if you look at, unfortunately, Bulb's collapse uh, in recent weeks has, has been well documented, but it, I did read one article where it talks a lot about the founders were often at Downing Street and so on. If we're going to get invited to be at Downing Street, we're obviously going to go. But government and external kind of uh, perception of the tech industry is almost, oh, let's let's closely align ourselves. Let's build these people up on platforms. Let's say that they are the captains of industry. These are the people that are going to lead us out of Brexit, out of out of the pandemic, and 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 almost put so much pressure 
on founders who, as you say, might be doing three jobs for the first time and, you know, exercising a whole load of skills that, that you haven't really done so before. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, we've built our entire business in lockdown. So we founded R3 after being made redundant about two weeks before the UK went into, seems like a long time ago, but what was its first lockdown? And uh, as a, a natural extrovert, that idea of never actually meeting the team as we grow the team and spending most of my time sitting at home, even if I am surrounded by some of the instruments that I love, it's still very uh, challenging for me personally and for us to grow the business. And I think, you know, what can be seen is whilst I act very much as a figurehead for the business and the public face of the business because that's where my strengths are none of aisle three would actually exist at all without having an incredibly talented co-founder and then over the last really over about the last 12 months as we've received our first rounds of funding a, a incredibly talented team which by the way are actually dotted all across the globe now with your team at aisle three how open are you about about how difficult it might be to because because everyone obviously you want the, the the business to be excited and to buy into into a mission and to kind of be working together, and I suppose they want to feel secure when they're when they're joining a growth company that the founder has a clear image and and has is in control. But I suppose mm -hmm. at the same time you might want them to know you know sometimes it's it's going to be difficult or I have or I have days where I'm not sure. Yes, absolutely. I mean. Um... I think it's very easy to look at some of the success stories on LinkedIn and think that startups are very easy and you're basically going to rock up and uh, get your MacBook and all of your branded uh, goodies on day one. And that's actually not the reality of most startups. And I think there are some uh, there are a few organizations which um, uh, should really be to blame for setting these expectations. I recently saw a. Uh, list of the top 33 tech startups in the UK and the headline number one was Revolut. Now uh, unless I've got this completely wrong the idea that a business that is worth 33 billion and has been going since about 2014-2015 and is on pretty much every continent is in the same bracket as a business like mine, which employs about 20 people, has raised about a million pounds worth of investment now and is trying to tackle a technical problem that we don't think that anyone else has managed to achieve yet, is staggering. Uh, for context, number 33 on that list, and they were listed in order of funds raised, had raised 109 million pounds. And so I'm pretty sure that the experience of working in a startup at a business that has raised 109 million pounds is very different than the experience of working at a startup when you come into a business in a completely transparent environment to own either a particular product or team or sector where you live by the values but also help define define those values in the business out of interest there are lots of these lists around mm -hmm. and it's great to put people on pedestals and, and give people exposure um mm -hmm. is it double-edged do you sometimes look at that and go you know what i would say in my salad years of building this business where 
any noise or any oxygen about the business felt like a good message, um, I would have happily have seen us on all of these different lists. But actually, I declined recently to go into um, to even enter into a top 100 startups because firstly, you had to enter. And uh, on that list, you genuinely had businesses that had zero product market fit and a couple of people and hadn't even gone through a pre-seed round. And then you had gorillas, which many people will know, it actually raised a billion. It's not even worth a billion, like it raised a billion for a last mile grocery delivery business, which will probably ever never, it will never be profitable. And so that seems a nonsense to try and put ourselves in that same bracket. And so, you know, as we've matured the business and matured our thinking, it's actually probably hardened my resolve a little bit more to work uh, really closely internally with our teams to get our business forward and focus on what we're really great at rather than externally where people think we might be. You touch on a subject there that, we obviously have to kind of treat slightly sensitively, but the idea that these a lot of these businesses might never turn a profit but get huge amounts of valuation. The the perception is often that geniuses have built technology businesses out of garages, and it's the kind of the Steve Jobs story. And that is, in itself is not particularly helpful when it when the the VC community is so instrumental to kind of the oxygen that allows businesses to get growth, right? Yeah, and having gone through two funding rounds, and we're currently in the middle of um, an EIS eligible seed round now, uh, I recognise it's really, really hard to raise investment. Um, last year, there were 320 businesses in the UK that raised investment for the first time. That's really not very many. And that was down from nearly 500 and then nearly 700 the preceding years. So it's actually getting much, much harder for uh, early stage founders to go from zero to raising funds. And so it's really difficult. And you should celebrate, by the way, the success of raising money because most businesses don't. Like 1% of businesses raise money. You know, most businesses, like about 80% of businesses don't make their first years worth of existence. The founders either fall out, tap out or burn out or something else happens. So we should celebrate that. But actually raising money isn't the uh, marker of success. What you actually do with that money. And I say this as a founder that is now about six months out from our pre-seed round and having made a very successful start to a seed round. Uh, like fundamentally, it's deploying that cash into the right places to the right people that really you should be very proud about. And I don't think that we always tell enough of that story about, um, yes, it's great we've raised, but actually these are some of the milestones that we've achieved. This is what we're really proud of, such as, for example, we took some of our last use of funds and we incorporated an entirely new subsidiary business in India so that all of our remote contract workers could actually work for a proper organization with their taxes paid and a proper work history in another country on another continent. You touch again there on something that's quite interesting. Success is relative, right? What is successful to you? I suppose in the world of, of, of startups, it's this idea that you're going to exit as a millionaire or a billionaire. And, and that might not actually be the case. Success might be providing reliable income, building the product that you want to build. Maybe it's 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 just getting personal satisfaction out of something, doing something that you enjoy, right? And we don't say that enough. No, we don't. I mean, 
the reason I'm in this and the reason that um, people join our organization and the reason investors invest in our business is because we we believe that we're tackling a really big problem right now in online shopping. And we think that that can be a billion dollar business and that should be a huge opportunity. So, yeah, uh, yeah like I understand everyone has different values in terms of whether they see something as a lifestyle business or whether they think that there's going to be a huge exit or a huge business at the end. Me personally, with 15 years experience in e-commerce, think that this, what what we're achieving right now at R3 is actually representative of a massive opportunity. I also have a constant um, challenge with that kind of cognitive dissonance of telling myself that we're building a billion dollar business, but at the same time, we're still just 20 people dotted across the planet where everyone is um, hugely essential to our business and we've raised a million pounds. And so look, the, the last thing that I wanted to ask, because you, you've, you've mentioned it earlier on, I think is, is around kind of social and the perception that everyone paints online that what success is on LinkedIn. We see all these posts, you see kind of the, the you know, we've, Instagram and its effect on people's mental health has been well, well discussed and, and whether or not likes should be turned off or so on. Um, what what do you think founders should post about on LinkedIn? What do you think is would be more helpful? If you're sitting there and you're scrolling on that feed, what's going to make you stop and go, hang on a minute, that's actually quite reassuring. That gives me a bit of comfort. Yeah, I, I think we need to post and continue to post about success, but we need to tell a little bit more of the narrative behind that. Um, and I say this as, as someone who, you know, like I don't always, in fact, I rarely feel successful, by the way. Like rarely, um, I think there's a lot more for us to do. And sometimes that's overwhelming and very difficult to comprehend. And other times that motivates me to drive the business forward. Uh, you know, fundamentally, that's how we started the business, right? In difficult times. I, I shared something that I thought was very interesting recently on LinkedIn, which received um, a lot of good coverage. And that was a decline from a VC. And I don't think we see enough of that. I find it very difficult as a founder talking to investors to determine the difference between an excuse and a reason for someone not to invest. Because statistically, by the way, almost every conversation, someone is not going to invest. Just like when you go through a hiring process and you build a team, you know that you need to interview 10 candidates and nine are going to be declines, either you or them. And it's similar when you're talking to investors but what's really difficult as a founder is trying to keep your um, motivation and um, the foresight to think about how you move the business forward when you have a multitude of different no's without understanding what the true reason is and so I, I actually had a decline from someone which uh, detailed exactly what their investment thesis was and where we didn't fit that and where we were very strong outside of that um, and that for me was the gold standard that I think anyone who's investing should adhere to because if people really care about founders mental health then uh, VCs or investors giving BS reasons or ghosting people is not going to be the way that helps anyone. Yeah, I think that's a really good message. Look, Thomas, I really appreciate your time. Uh, if someone wants to find out a bit more about Isle 3, what's the best way to do it? Uh, Other well, than listen to the original podcast. Yeah, you can listen to the original podcast. <laughs> um, we are just about to launch uh, in December the UK's largest selection of sneakers. 
all aggregated from all of your favorite retailers. So check out our site. It's Isle. So that's A-I-S-L-E-3.co. And my name's Thomas Vosby. You can look me up on LinkedIn. I'm always happy to talk to uh, fellow founders and provide any guidance or advice. And of course, always happy to talk to investors who help get us a little bit further along. Absolutely. Look, thanks for your time. And uh, I know that those are real guitars because actually I've spotted a metronome on the piano. They are real guitars. Thank you for having me again, David. Enjoyed it. Right, Keish, we're switching to a weekly show, uh, yeah. which means that we do want to get a bit more audience interaction. At the minute, we don't we don't have any fan mail do to we go not? through this week. We don't. Oh, but, no. but I'm planning, because we've never really asked for people to write into the show, but we want them to. We want, if you've listened to this and mm. you've got some tips to help help manage mental health, let us know and we'll we'll share them next week. Equally, next week's show is all about technology that is good for society and being responsible in terms of thinking about building tech and, and the impact that it might have. So if you think if if you have any ideas for technology that would that would be responsible and have a good impact on society, tell us. Let us know in advance of that show as well. Um any any bits of technology that you think is good for society, Akish? Uh, electric cars. Okay, yeah, yeah, fair. EVs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that's pretty good. Um, solar solar energy. Like that 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 is that technology? Can we can we say that's technology? It's a bit old hat, but yeah, it's right. a bit yeah, but it's good. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? Like, it's decent. <laughs> not in this country. Not right now. Not right now. They they ain't no light. I'll tell you that for free. It's what, no. I've got I've got a little thing at the side of the house that's got the address on it that's got a little solar panel that me in laws bought and it doesn't light up much at night right now. Oh really? Oh. For summer, yeah, beautiful. Not not so much now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I'll, I'll be intrigued to see what our, our listeners think. And also, if if they are from uh, if they're not from the UK, let us know as well. I'd be. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I mean our, our first our first guest um, next week is is uh, is Huja who is South Korean and her business Nomad Her is based out of Paris. So we are going international. International. I like that. I, like I that. mean, we're going international this week with, with Craig being from the States. Yeah. But yeah. we're going international in, in the other direction. We're going to the Far East. Basically, we've spread all over the place. Beautiful. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Love it. Absolutely. Uh, if you've enjoyed today's episode, a lot of the themes actually are addressed in the Harvey Nash Digital Leadership Report. We'll put a link in the show notes for that to go check that out. Some literature that you might find interesting. But other than that, I hope you've enjoyed this week's show and we'll be back in are seven they, days' uh, time. Are they, are they also going to see the video of you uh, representing the uh, or presenting the Digital Leadership Report results? They might find that on the website. Yeah, if they, yeah. If, yeah, they might find that. If you, if you find if you find a guy wearing a, a, a roll neck, looking like he's uh, looking like he's a, a model, then that's uh, that's Dave Savage. So if, if you've never, <laughs> like, seen I, I look website, like I look like the weediest um, security <laughs> SAS security ever. If you've never seen what Dave Savage looks like, and you've been hearing him for however many months you've been listening to us, then uh, yeah, he's, uh, he's he's got good rig. So uh... <laughs> make sure. Oh dear. Right, that'll do.